from Zamo Digital, welcome to the SaaS Marketing Superstars Podcast with your host, Aaron Sikowski. This is the show where we uncover proven growth strategies from CMOs and marketing leaders behind some of the fastest growing SaaS companies. Hey, superstars. Thanks for joining us today. I'm your host, Aaron Zikowski, and today I'm chatting with Thomas Small. Thomas is the CEO and founder of FE International, an M&A firm that advises SaaS, e-commerce, and content businesses. Thomas has consulted thousands of entrepreneurs on exit strategy, growth, and business development. Hey, Thomas, how are you doing today? Hey, Aaron. I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Fantastic. Good to have you on the show. So just to kick it off, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and about your company? Yeah, sure. So my name is Thomas Smale. I'm the founder and CEO of uh, FE International. We currently have around 90 team members across the, the globe. Our yeah. head office is in uh, New York, our second Biggest office is in London. I'm personally based in San Francisco, and then we have an office in Miami and various other places um, around the around the world, particularly in like the Western US and um, Europe. So we have a team everywhere. Um, we work on lots of different things, uh, but the main business is mergers and acquisitions. So, in simple terms, we work with people who own businesses anywhere from $100,000 valuation to $150 million valuation is the biggest we're working on at the moment. Huh? We ultimately help them sell their business. So we work with them through the valuation process, preparing it for sale, negotiating a deal, and then working with um, buyers in our existing network. We've been in business 11 years now, so we have a lot of buyers on the network. We run various outreach programs, um, events whatever it might be to get more buyers into a network who are interested in in, in buying a business yeah. um, but ultimately our, our client the majority of the time is the seller so we're representing the the business owner um so technically the buyer is not our client even though it's obviously in our best interest to build that that relationship okay fantastic so as we discussed a little bit before the way we're going to take this interview today um i'm kind of going to talk personally you know i've been involved in a lot of SaaS businesses, you know, doing paid advertising, you know, we've helped a lot of companies grow. And I've actually been thinking about, you know, would it be a good idea for me to purchase a business that I can, you know, grow on my own? Um, so I'm going to take this opportunity to ask you questions kind of from a, from a potential buyer's point of view and a first time buyer's point of view about the, um, you know, best practices, pitfalls to avoid, et cetera, of buying a business. Um, so, so starting off, you know, broad question, you know, what should entrepreneurs be looking for when considering buying a business for the first time? What, what should the considerations be? Yeah, so I think it's a good question because I think a lot of people get attracted by kind of trends or they go on like Twitter or Facebook and they see everyone talking about something. They're like, oh, I should definitely buy that. It sounds really cool. Uh-huh. But ultimately, I think the, the very first thing you need to establish is if you're working by yourself or if you have a team, like what is your skill set? What are you good at? Yeah. Where can you add value? There's no point buying a bit. Like a lot of people would be like, oh, you should buy a SaaS business. But if you don't know anything about tech, you can't write code. There are exceptions, but you probably shouldn't buy a SaaS business. Maybe mm-hmm. you should buy an e-commerce business. Maybe you should buy a blog. Maybe you should not buy a tech business at all. Maybe you should buy something else. So establish your skill set and be honest. Yep. Because everyone's doing something doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing to do, particularly in investing. Um, figure out what your goals are. I think that's very important. Again, lots of people get distracted by other people's goals. Some people's goal might be to buy a small business, make $5,000 a month, go live on an island and that's more than enough to sustain them as a single person yeah um, 
other people have completely different goals. We might live in a different different part of the world, like where I am in San Francisco, $5,000 a month doesn't go very far. I know that's extremely privileged way of thinking about things, but particularly in the world of like online and tech, you get perspectives of people all over the world. So to one person, $5,000 a money, sorry, $5,000 a month is a lot of money. Yeah. To someone else, it's, it doesn't even pay their rent. Yeah, so yeah, I'm in Los Angeles. Figure out, figure out what your goals are and figure out what's important to you. And there's not a right or wrong answer. There's no way I can tell you, my team can tell you, a wealth advisor can tell you, an accountant can tell you. You have to figure out what's right for you. Mm-hmm. And part of that as well is also um, what are you willing to, to do? Are you willing to work 80 hours a week to build a business? Or do you just want something that's going to be, yes, passive? So it's going to take one hour a week to manage. Yeah. So you have options for, for both, but you have to be super honest with yourself because some businesses you look at acquiring mm-hmm. um, are going to be a full-time job. Others are going to be more part-time. And not that this is your question, but sellers will generally underestimate how much time they spend on a business. Uh, and as an entrepreneur yourself, you're aware that generally running a business is a full-time thing. There are yeah. very few people who genuinely spend an hour a week on their business particularly if that's their only thing right makes sense so when i've gone on to marketplaces and you know websites where businesses are being sold i tend to be a little bit uh, nervous maybe a little bit skeptical and i and i look at these businesses and i wonder you know what's wrong with this why why is somebody trying to sell but i but i i assume that's probably not the best perspective there's probably a lot of reasons why people sell that aren't necessarily because they see that their business is fading or kind of on a downtrend or something like that so can you, if you could share with us why are many, you know, some of the reasons maybe why, why people might be selling um, that aren't probably necessarily bad from the point of view of the buyer? Yeah. Um, I mean, so firstly, it's a perfectly reasonable concern. Like at FE, one of our biggest jobs is establishing the legitimacy of a business up front to make mm-hmm. sure the seller is serious about selling, the reasons they provide are at least believable or, or provable, Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not a fundamental problem with the business that they've not disclosed. And while ultimately as a buyer, it's your responsibility to do due diligence, one of our big value adds is we do do that. So my answer would be slightly different if you look at a marketplace. A lot of marketplaces these days are quite good at verifying what they would describe as due diligence, but isn't real due diligence. Like, yeah. does this person own the, the domain? Um is the revenue $10,000 a month per stripe, which they're disclosing. Very, very few people lie about owning the domain or their revenue because it's it's way too easy to verify. People lie about things like the amount of time they spend, those kind of things. Oh. Um, that's much more difficult to figure out. And I guess that's why most of our process is not really automated. There's lots of people in the process because you kind of, you can trick a system, but it's harder to trick people after over a thousand deals we've completed um the the genuine reasons why we see people sell so again my caveat here is this is if you're buying a business through us that we're representing um probably the most common reason is they have a bigger project or another business they're working on that maybe they prefer maybe they think it has more potential um just a general interest thing um we're very rarely working with people who are retiring most people we work with in their like 20s 30s 40s even if they sell their business for 50 million they're still not retiring they're going to go mm-hmm. do something else um so generally a bigger project 
sometimes it's just lost passion. Um, and I think this is a hard one for people who've never run a business to understand because it's a really common question. Like um, for people who've never been an entrepreneur and never run a business before, yeah. they'd be like, oh, why would you ever sell a business? Why would you ever get bored of a business that's making you money? Right. But when you actually have it, you realize that you like a business is a big commitment. So you, you can lose passion, lose interest. Sure. And to my previous point about what's a good business to buy, um, something you're interested in, conversely, a good business to sell is one that you're no longer interested in. Mm-hmm. And and um, I say your interest and passion change over time. So like what, what I personally like 10 years ago, I mostly still like the same things now, but a lot of things are completely different. Sure. And that's the same with, same with most people, like things change. Um, another really common one, particularly at the lower end of the market. So say generally valuation, let's say below $2 million. Um, the founder or founders have grown the business as much as they can with their skill set or maybe their goals as well. So a, a very common reason is they realize to scale the business further, they need to hire and manage a team. A lot of people are not willing to hire and manage a team. And to my previous point, that's not wrong or right. It's not objectively either direction it's ultimately if you don't want to manage people managing people is a very big commitment hiring people um and i think a lot of people don't realize that until they've hired their first full-time employee they have a mortgage they have wife or husband and kids they want a 401k they want various other things if they're in the us at least they want a 401k um it's a very big commitment to just hire one person um so a lot of people don't want to do that and they realize that upfront they'll look to sell um from a financial perspective, like the other reason is capital gains. If you're selling a business, generally paying capital gains, it is a lower rate than income. So sometimes it's just financial, like, hey, I can sell my business for four or five times, pay a lower tax rate, take a year off. It does happen, like kind of a mini retirement, and then they get yeah. back to it with something new. So I'd say they're the most common reasons. Yeah. Um, on marketplaces, you have to be a lot more careful because people have lots of illegitimate reasons or legitimate to them but they're not going to tell you like yeah. they know there is a regulatory change in the industry coming up right in six months time that you're probably not going to find googling but they may well find because they're a member of a kind of industry association or yeah. they went to a, a conference and someone told them about it mm-hmm. so things like that um that's a little bit more yeah off, off. a tech that's becoming outdated or a bigger competitor that's coming to eat their lunch or something along those lines it, it, exactly there's there's all sorts of things and it's generally very difficult to get a seller to disclose that to you so i'd say you are entirely correct being skeptical of businesses being sold particularly on self-serve mm-hmm. marketplaces because generally people are not lying about the things you think they would lie about no yeah. very few people lie about revenue it's too easy to verify right so let's leave marketplaces aside for a moment and, and think about you know in, in the deals that, that you do um with with, with your network are there other mechanisms that could be built into a contract that can reduce the risk on the part of the buyer? So for example, you know, there's, there's a trial period where the, you know, I guess the deal could be reversed or, or decide rather than selling the whole company, keep the seller on involved in the company so that they still have uh, an interest in it that makes them want to have it succeed or anything along those lines. Yeah. So trial period, definitely not. I'd say in, in general, if you're buying a business, you've got to be comfortable with, buying the business okay. so the thing we do up front is have a very clear 
outline due diligence period. So before we would accept any offer from you as a buyer, we would get you to outline what your requirements are and what you're worried about. Like, what are your main concerns? If you send us a list of 500 things you're worried about, probably not going to be a good fit. If you've narrowed it down to like 10 things, like I'm concerned about the future of this industry because company X just announced this, mm-hmm. how does it affect the business? That's quite quite valid. If you're sending across the list, like how do I know you've not Photoshopped this? Like super paranoid questions. Yeah. Generally, it's going to be a lot harder to get over line. So firstly, at some stage as a buyer, you, you are taking on the risk of owning the business. There are ways as a buyer, I'd suggest you can structure a deal to make sure that the seller is incentivized to help you. So firstly, really common is what we'd call a, a holdback, which is effectively a percentage of the total deal price, usually around 10%. So let's say it's a million dollar deal. It might be $100,000. Uh-huh. And that's put aside for three or six or 12 months tied to a contingency that the seller has to fulfill and a very objective um very objective contingency so it's usually training like hey i'm aaron i'm buying this business you're clearly the expert at this industry i know about seo marketing i run a podcast and what i'm doing all these things what i don't know about the industry itself i need you to help me 10 hours a month for 12 months um at the end of the end of those 12 month period i think we've done that you release a hundred thousand dollars so you make it a large enough amount that it incentivizes them to stay interested um but it can't be so large that there's no point in them selling the business because if you change it and you're like on that million dollar deal i'll give you a hundred thousand dollars up front and nine hundred thousand dollars in a year mm-hmm. once you trained me no legitimate seller is going to take that deal so if someone does offer you extremely favorable terms as a buyer, that's where I'd start to get a little bit skeptical. The market is very strong as a seller at the moment. So if people are offering terms which seem too good to be true, then they probably are. I know it's a bit cliche, but um, so the training holdback is a, is a good one. We see that on almost all deals which involve some level of seller involvement. Um, from time to time, again, depending on the business, some form of performance-based structure tied to revenue, net income, gross profit. The metrics will really vary depending on the type of business. Mm-hmm. Um, always possible, assuming there is a good reason why an earnout is necessary, because there are plenty of buyers out there who are willing to buy a business that one. So a common one might be, hey, Aaron, you own the business. Um, there's 10 clients who make up, say, 50% of the revenue, and they're all clients you onboarded, sold yourself, you've met them in person, you have the relationship yeah. and they're paying 50,000 a year contracts. So you'll tie in some form of performance-based contingency to make sure they renew. Um, and the purpose of that is not so as a seller, you have to do all the work, but the purpose is from the buyer perspective, you know the seller is incentivized to not lie about the relationship. Because often people... Like the clients of the business will be like their brother or their uncle or their their girlfriend's dad or uh-huh. sister-in-law. There'll be relationships in there that will not necessarily be disclosed and are almost impossible to figure out. Hence why earnouts are, I feel like they're good to ask for, tied to very specific contracts and outcomes, because then if they don't agree to it, you might then start digging a bit further and be like, well, yeah, really why, would, why, why would they not agree if they have a great relationship with these 10 clients and they're 
they've told you up front they're sure they're going to renew, why would they not be willing to tie, again, caveat, a small portion of the deal to that renewal? Like it's in their best interest and yours. So again, it does sometimes depend on the deal itself, but from a buy perspective, I'd say training hold back, you should always at least ask for it. Yep. Always get it, you should always ask. Um, and some form of earn out if you believe that the seller has a really good relationship with some clients or some some reason why their lack of involvement in the business would potentially cause that client to or clients to disappear or not renew or whatever it might be. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I hadn't thought about that. Um, moving on to financing a little bit, you know, what, what are some of the creative ways that you know someone could use financing to purchase a business without, ne- without necessarily having all the capital up front? So let's say I want to buy a business for a million bucks. I don't have a million dollars in my bank account, but you know, I, I believe this business. Are, are there ways to make things like that happen? So it's definitely difficult, particularly in the current. If, if you're running, this is where say let's call it the tech industry is a little bit different from the offline world. If you go to a traditional business broker and you say, "Hey, I want to buy a restaurant," then ninety-nine percent of those deals will be done with some form of debt because banks are used to lending against real estate effectively. Uh-huh. And the inventory is like, "Hey, we have a kitchen full of materials." that's kind of easy for a bank to value. It's like fixes and fittings are worth this, the lease is worth X, easy to lend against. Uh-huh. Online businesses are definitely slower to catch up. So if, if you're in the US and you have, you're either a US citizen or you have a green card, um, you can get an SBA loan, um, which is government-backed loan. Um, they were also behind like the PPP program, which most US business owners took advantage of. Uh-huh. Um, various things like that. We can use the SBA program to, buy a business I said that's definitely the most common form of um financing we see that buyers get if they only have a small percentage of the cash to put down um most buyers as they get larger they're not they're probably not using their own money if they're private equity firms they have other people's cash but I guess they've already answered that question they've already figured out how to raise capital so like well we raised 50 million dollars from investors so there's always a possibility you can go raise the money yourself privately from investors debt or whatever a combination of the two um i would say there's not a huge there are definitely sites out there and kind of companies that claim they'll help you fund a online business i've seen i've seen lots of them i've heard lots of claims um and while i wouldn't say it's impossible i'd say the majority of them have said they will provide revenue-based financing to buy a business or whatever generally are not going to offer you terms which are good enough to go ahead and actually buy a business. Uh-huh. Um, particularly, as to be completely honest, as a buyer, it's very competitive. There are plenty of buyers out there who are either just physically have the cash already, so you're competing against buyers more. Um, they have already raised the money or got pre-commitments from investors or whatever it might be. Um, maybe they have a much bigger business and they can borrow money. If I have $50 million sat with... JP Morgan in bonds and equities, and I want to borrow $5 million to go buy business, I can call my banker and, and in a couple of days get that cash unlocked based on the equity. So I guess the, the playing field is not necessarily fair if you are in that position where you're like, hey, I only have 100K. So my advice usually um, to people like that is start with saying small, build it up and try to find a way to get the capital yeah. in advance. Um, so I definitely wouldn't want to put people off trying to get creative, but it's been my experience and from what we've seen, 
it is uncommon, despite all the promises of the companies. And often the terms will offer will be, I would say, not good enough to justify doing it. And the other problem, if you do need some form of outside financing or contingency on your offer, it's very similar to real estate, but probably worse. Um, what you're going to have to pay is going to be substantially higher than the cash buyer. Uh-huh. So uh, the, the cash buyer might have to offer a million dollars. If you're like, well, I, I need 90 days for SBA, maybe you have to offer $1.2 million. So uh-huh. yes, on paper, you've borrowed money at 3% if you get through the SBA program, but you've also paid much more money for the business in the first place. So it's not, it's not quite as good as it sounds. Um, so it's definitely not me trying to put you off. I'd say it is challenging and as a non-cash buyer you're definitely behind buyers who have cash and particularly in the US there's a lot of capital out there at the moment and I don't see that slowing down anytime soon to be completely honest. Right yeah it sounds like you know if you're going to get your financing get your financing but don't make it part of the deal just go get your loans in advance go get your investors lined up in advance and come with the cash in your hand already. Exactly and I'll put you at the the front of the queue and get a better deal at terms yeah. To your earlier point, like, um, hey, I want a training hold back. Um, I want an earn out tied to these important customers renewing. Much more likely if you have cash on hand. If you're like, hey, I need 90 days because I haven't actually got any money. Uh, so I'm going to go ask a bank for some money, whether it's SBA or whatever. Plus, I want you to train me for a year because I'm a bit worried that you're ripping me off. Plus, I need you to do this, this, and this. Uh-huh. Like, while your concerns might be completely valid, you're probably not going to be at the front of the line to do it out. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, that's helpful. Um, we touched on them a little bit, some of, some of the marketplaces out there, you know, I know obviously, you know, you, it's not the way that you work, you've got your network and you've got your, your deals, but you know, I'd imagine there's some marketplaces out there that are good places for a smaller investor to get involved in buying a business. Um, I'm not going to ask you to tell me which ones you don't like, because we don't want to uh, badmouth anybody, but are there any out there that, that you're aware of that you think are trustworthy, good marketplaces for people to be looking for businesses? I think there's there's marketplaces out there you can go to, which I think do a really good job of verifying the basics like revenue. So I think you've got places like Flipper, Microacquire in the software space, which will uh-huh. verify the revenue, like I said, but it's very much a self-serve process. I would uh-huh. generally say if you want to buy a if you want to buy a business and you know what you, your skills are and you know what your goals are, probably the best way of doing it is just reaching out your reaching out yourself. So find 20 of those companies and email them being like, hey, I'm in the, I'm looking to buy a business. Here's my background. Are you interested in a conversation? Um, it's like even when they're not actually being publicly marketed to be sold anyways, just reach out to sure. people. Just reach out to people. When I first started in the industry 10, 11 years ago, Flipper, Microacquire, all those kind of places didn't exist. So mm-hmm. you had to go look yourself. There wasn't really any other way of doing it. So definitely one way to do the deal. I'd say one, one challenge with the marketplaces specifically is a lot of sellers will just list on there because they can. So there'll, there'll be a lot of time wasters. And this applies as a seller as well. Uh-huh. Um, but for every kind of 100 businesses listed on there, 90 of the sellers are probably just not particularly interested in selling. They're just fishing, seeing what kind of number they can get, using it as leverage for something else. Uh-huh. Um, so it's definitely worth having a look, but I'd say in general, if there is a really good business, similar to if you're buying through us, it's probably going to be very competitive mm. um, as well. And if someone's willing to offer you, like I said, too good to be true terms, there's 
almost no scenario, regardless of what people think, where you can go onto one of those marketplaces, and there's, there's tons of them out there, where you are the only person who's discovered a really good SaaS business that someone is selling for two times annual net income. Yeah. It, just, it just doesn't happen. It's been sitting uh, there for more than a week or two. It's probably not a good deal, is what you're saying. It's not necessarily that it's been sitting there for too long. It's just if the terms just seem like way better than market, mm-hmm. you are probably not the person who's discovered it on a marketplace where thousands of people visit every day. Yeah. Hence why emailing people direct can be good because we have clients, we have quite a lot of clients actually who their entire business or a substantial part of their business is buying businesses privately, um, working on them for a bit, whether that's three months, three years, 10 years, and then they come sell it through us. So it's kind of like an arbitrage opportunity. Um, that's more prevalent, I'd say, if you buy privately versus on a marketplace, because on a marketplace, challenge of that is lots of people look at the business, um, lots of unqualified people, and the big challenge as a buyer on the marketplaces, regardless of how private the information is, you can always, it's relatively easy to get the name of the business or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. There's a really big industry out there for people who are starting out and they figure out you can get inspiration by visiting marketplaces and seeing what other people are doing. Um, and often small businesses have relatively low barriers to entry. So I don't know, let's say you have a time tracking app for nurses and it's, it's listed on Flipper, for example, and 50 people look at it and make $2,000 a month. In 12 months' time, there's probably another 10 time tracking for nurses apps with very similar names, very similar looking businesses because there is a big market of people out there who go there for ideas. Uh-huh. And the marketplace is, I guess, their incentive is to get the buzz and get like PR, get people talking about it. Yeah. They don't necessarily, with some exceptions, they don't necessarily care who it is. They just want the buzz. So if 10 people are going there to kind of, because it's great for ideas and they'll tweet about it, share on Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever it might be, tell their buddies, that's good for buzz. Mm-hmm. Um, so you do have to be a little bit careful as a buyer because you can buy a business and then suddenly be swamped with competition. Yeah. Hence why buying private is good because the vast majority of actual serious buyers are not cold emailing or warm emailing or whatever it might be. Sites they want, they're just browsing marketplaces and messaging 20 people, being like, Tell me more about your business. Uh-huh. It's interesting. It sounds like you know the, the parallels that you've kind of touched on, you know, just to real estate are, are quite strong. You know, I've got a little bit of experience, you know, having done a couple of real estate deals in my life. You know, the idea about coming, you know, with an all cash offer puts you at an advantage. The fact that you know, once something's listed on the MLS in the, in the real estate world, you know, the whole world knows about it. You've got your bidding wars, you know, all this, all the buyers, both serious and serious and not serious are already competing on it. But if you could find those quiet deals that haven't been listed yet, those are often where some of the best possibilities and opportunities come about. That sounds it, like it, very similar in this world. It, exactly. I'd say like a lot of the buyers who are either in the industry or transition to the industry do have a real estate background. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there's lots of similarities from a deal-making perspective. Uh-huh. Um, the, the, probably the main difference at the moment in the industry is lack of transparency over comps. Like you, you don't, the vast majority of sales, the actual final sales price is not disclosed. So there's often a lot of like misinformation there. Whereas if you sell a house, at least in the US, public information, you can find out what a 
house sold for. So right. being able to value a house is relatively like when I bought a house recently, mm-hmm. I bought, never bought a house before, and I was just looking at all the comps, made a spreadsheet. Yeah. What do they say for per square foot? And I'm like, well, my offer is this because that's what the house next door sold for per square foot. Right. That was my approach. But the business is much more difficult because you can be like, well, this one sold for six times. But you actually don't know because it was listed for six times. Doesn't mean it sold for six times. It could have sold for more, could have sold for less. Uh-huh. Um, so that's probably the main difference between the two. Um, it's probably just because I guess the world of buying tech businesses is, well, thousands of years behind real estate, but I guess hundreds sure. of years behind in the developed world, at least. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um what should I have asked you about this process that, that, that I haven't yet? What, what, what else should people know in terms of, you know, even, even from the seller side, you know, buying and selling and, and, and doing these types of deals? Um, I think first it's been an interesting conversation. Um, I think the way you think about it is exactly how you should be thinking about it. Um, I'd say in general, it, it doesn't hurt to browse and have conversations as long as you're honest with if you're a buyer and you're approaching a seller or you're approaching a broker or an MA firm like us or even on a marketplace there's no harm in like being quite honest like if you come to us as a buyer and you say hey look we've got hundred thousand dollars million dollars what can i do like we'll happily speak to you years in advance i think our data at least shows that the average buyer that joins our network doesn't buy a business for two years interesting network we look at lots of deals um we won't necessarily let you ask lots of questions. We're not going to let you get on 10 calls with sellers to have hypothetical conversations about whether or not you like their business if you're not ready to go. Sure. But we'll definitely let you kind of browse to a to a point. Um, you can do the same in marketplaces. You can do the same cold emailing. So I say don't be afraid to, if you do not know the answer of what's your, what are your skills, what you're interested in, what are your goals, have a little bit of a look, look first. Because I say the vast majority of people in that two-year tier, two-year period change what they're looking for, or narrow it down a little bit more, yeah. or maybe they broaden it. Because a lot yeah. of people come to us and like, okay, I've got two point five million dollars. I want to pay a three times multiple for an e-commerce business that sells green plastic pens, and that's what I need. And yes, it's not impossible. Again, I'm not trying to talk in absolutes, but it's highly unlikely a business like that is going to come along. As much as I, I like my company and I think we're good at what we do, yeah. probably not going to find your business that sells green plastic pens, nor are we going to look for you, and yeah. nor are, except the marketplaces or, or whatever out there. So a lot of people then, they then broaden what they're looking for. And they're like, maybe I just want an e-commerce business. So that's why your goal, establishing your own goals is important because then you can either narrow them or broaden them in line with what's out there when i say the most successful buyers that we've seen have broadened what they're looking for at least initially and then maybe they narrow down over time but if you start too specific it, we could have the same we can jump on a podcast in five years time and still have exactly the same conversation we're like oh thomas i'm still like thinking about buying a business i've been like looking but haven't managed to buy anything because nothing perfect's come along uh-huh. like that's always going to be the case if you're too specific um have have a look think about it in advance like doesn't 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 usually cost anything to have a conversation with someone or at least like read and do a little bit of research in advance um but ultimately if you're going to buy a business like a lot of it's just like psychological you have to actually be ready to do it 
there's like I said, there's no trial period. You can you can go to a marketplace, you can buy directly, you can buy through us. And while we do our own due diligence process in advance, we, we can't guarantee you anything. Ultimately, you're the one that has to run the, the business. I, I can't, I will help you if you have questions and so on my team afterwards. Yeah. The seller will train you, but ultimately you're the one that has to run the business. So a lot of this is kind of personally and professionally being ready for the commitment of buying a business. And that often takes time. Hence why it's important to start looking and then you can kind of right. figure out what you're willing to do. Not everyone wants to work 80 hours a week and that, that's fine. Just don't buy a business that requires 80 hours a week of work. Find one that requires thing. So let me change the direction a, a little bit. Um, I'm going to give you an opportunity maybe to sell yourself a little bit here, but yeah. also um, I'm asking this question actually on behalf of a friend of mine who's in the process right now of selling. So we're going to switch from, you know, we've been talking about buying business a little bit, but I mean, one question we're going to focus on this shortly, but how does your company assist a seller? I've got everybody right now who's trying to sell his company. It's his first time doing it. You know, never been through the process. He's trying to figure it out as he goes. You know, how do you, how do you provide service for somebody like that? Yeah, so um, this is the challenge with the industry today. 10 years ago, it was a little bit different. Part of the reason I started FE International was there wasn't really any way you could sell a business. Um, and people would come to me and be like, hey, Tom, I was buying and selling businesses for myself, like very small ones, mm-hmm. and then created the firm from demand that existed, but people didn't know existed at that time. Nowadays, there's loads of marketplaces you can go try for free or you list for 10 bucks, whatever it might be. So you can kind of do it for free. A lot of people kind of forget about the opportunity cost. Um, for us, so I'll, pro- so I'll go through our process and I'll go through maybe the pros and cons. Um, so we start with a free valuation. I guess that's our, our lead gen. We will happily speak to anyone for free, put together a valuation, tell you what we think your business is worth based on over a thousand deals we've completed with a proprietary valuation model. We track data on literally everything. And to my point, we have the actual comps of what businesses have sold for. Like that's private information, but we have it. Uh-huh. As, as a potential buyer, you do not have access to that information. Yeah, as a potential seller, you do not. Many people have anecdotal data points. So they're like, oh, my friend sold for 10 times or two times or whatever. Very, I say dangerous as such, but be very careful making decisions about selling your business based off one or two data points. Like, oh, TechCrunch said this person sold for 20 million. Like you don't know the small print of that deal it could have been a million dollars in cash and then 19 million in performance to our earlier yeah. conversation about what the deal they're like once we go through the valuation if you then engage us you only pay us if the business sells so yes we're not free but the work is effectively free until the business yes. sells we then put together a sales package what we call a prospectus telling buyers about the business Depending on the size complexity, it's usually a 20 to 40 page document about the, the business. For larger businesses, generally what I describe as large is over $10 million. Um, we have an additional stage in there, which is what we'd call a teaser, which is a much shorter document, which generally large funds want to look at before they commit to reading a 40 page document. Um, and then, we, like I said, we go out to a network of investors on a we don't just blast an email list. So like we list it on our website, blast a hundred thousand people and be like, okay, let's wait for the bids to come in. It's mm-hmm. not really how it works, unfortunately. So a very targeted approach of reaching out to buyers in our network that 
we know are interested in a business like yours. So to my point earlier about the guy looking for the $2.5 million green plastic pen business, if that happens to be the business we're selling, we'll reach out to that buyer and say, hey, look, we have the perfect business for you, or you told us you were looking for this. Would you perhaps be interested in buying a metal pen business? So we'll do that. Yeah. Um, so then have a strategic approach where we reach out to uh, either private equity firms or strategic buyers who could be a good fit. Um, you never really know. It could be a buyer in our network who's actively looking to buy a business. Um, could be a strategic buyer who has a business similar or tangential or some form of similarities. Maybe they're the best buyer or maybe a private equity firm. They have raised m- money to buy businesses like yours, um, effectively. Okay. We'll then help you navigate that that process. So we handle all conversations on your behalf. I guess part of the value from a financial perspective is we're having those conversations with disqualifying buyers who are not serious. So Aaron, if you call up and say, hey, I want to buy this million dollar business, I have $100,000. I'll say, sorry, we can't help you. Here yeah. are some like suggestions of where you might be able to go raise the capital and then, then come back to us. So we would always, as a buyer, we'd always have a respectful conversation with you, but we're not going to waste the seller's time if you you don't have the, yeah, the capital. Sense. So yeah. it's where not we struggle from a marketing perspective, but we're not that popular with buyers because our job is to kind of buyers like and respect our process, but often a lot of people don't like it because they're like, oh, I just want to chat for the seller. And so yeah. well, we're paid to you work for the seller. Exactly. We work for the seller. Like uh-huh. they're the ones paying us. They are our client. Um, we don't want you to be ripped off. As a buyer, the best thing for us is if you buy a business do really well and come back and then buy 10 more businesses or raise 10 times more money. Um, but the, the seller is our client. They're the ones we're working for. If you don't like it as a buyer, that's often a sign we're doing our job well. Uh, if you're super happy and every buyer is like, oh, wow, this business is amazing, such a good deal, valuation is really fair, then we've screwed up. Um, and then we help negotiate for, through the process. And that's kind of the unspoken part of MA. What people don't realize is how many buyers are out there who look very legitimate will make offers um but the deal will fall apart i think it's something like 90 percent of private deals and i think you could probably include marketplaces in there maybe their success rate is slightly higher but it's a very high percentage of deals will fall through often because buyers will kind of get quite easy to create a, a business with a fancy name so it'd be like thomas capital put up a website put like a stock photo of a well, we do, we do actually have an office in downtown New York. We do a stock photo in New York and be like, private equity firm, Thomas raised $50 million to buy businesses. So you can look quite legitimate quite easily. Um, but then often what a lot of buyers will do, and they'll not tell sellers this if you're selling privately, is they'll make an offer in a business, 10 million, 20 million, 1 million, whatever it might be. Yep. Uh, what they don't tell you is they then have to go out and raise capital. So they'll say, okay, it's going to take 90 days to close. They're not actually spending time doing due diligence on your deal they're spending time trying to figure out how to get the money so extreme rate of businesses falling through so a lot of what we get paid for is like using our experience to vet buyers and make sure they actually have the capital finding someone interested in buying a business is easy yeah finding someone interested in buying a business and actually has the ability to buy your business is much harder but there's a very small nuance that most people don't most people don't realize like oh i yeah, I listed my business on a marketplace and I've got 50 inquiries. Like, that's great. That doesn't necessarily mean mean anything. Like, yeah. anyone do that. Same with a house. You can put a house on Zillow and get 50 inquiries. Um, 
difference with selling a house is firstly, like I said, transparent comps, easy to finance. Sure. You can put five, 10, three percent down and get a mortgage. And almost anyone can do that. Buying a business, that's not how it works. You have to already have the cash in, in most cases. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we do for other places. So a lot of it's just kind of navigating the challenges in due diligence. Yeah. Um, as a seller, if you've not been there before, generally speaking, the buyer you are selling to is more sophisticated in the acquisition process than you are. So there's a huge number of pitfalls. I mean, we could do 50 follow-up podcasts for an hour and I would not be able to give you all of the, the pitfalls. There's a huge number of things that buyers will do and they'll be like, oh, this is this is like a really standard term. You should definitely sign this. Yeah. As a seller, you don't really know. You're like, oh, that sounds reasonable. Like my friend said that sounds okay. They sold a business, blah, blah, blah. Lots, so lots of different things can go. So a lot of what you're paying for us is experience, kind of peace of mind, high success rate. We sell 96.1% of businesses. Um, we take on sorry 94.1% so very high percentage of businesses we we take on Um, our valuations are very accurate up front a lot of people don't necessarily like our valuations because they're realistic because people are like oh well I've heard that I can get 50 times for my business because TechCrunch said that this similar business sold for 100 million dollars and it was doing 2 million dollars revenue like I said you don't really know the terms we do know the terms hence we're very realistic Okay. Um, as our process, we'll navigate it. High success rate. Yes, you can try to sell your business yourself, and you can get offers, whether or not they good offers or the best you can get. I guess you don't really know because there's such a lack of transparency. Um, that's kind of what we do and what you pay us for, effectively. Like I said, okay. that's, uh, that's helpful. Um, well, I mean, I've I've learned a ton in this call. Uh, I'm sure the listeners have also. So appreciate all the. Uh, experience that you've shared with us, um, experience coming from working with all these businesses. Real quickly, before I let you go, we generally do a lightning round at the end, a couple quick questions with quick answers, um, and then we'll wrap this up. So first question, um, what book would you recommend? Um, business book, fiction book, doesn't matter that you think people would enjoy. So a book I read a long time ago, and I, I always remind myself of this in my business. And I think, actually talking about acquisition is quite important. It's called Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell. Uh-huh. It's kind of more about well, it's about lots of things, but that at some stage in your business or life, you reach a stage where you suddenly kind of get to the next level. Right. 10,000 hours. Exactly. But I think a lot of people get kind of impatient. And I know in my business over the last 11 years, we've had times where I remember we first got to our first million dollar revenue. This was 10 years ago now. And then we got like stuck for like a six months. It was really hard. We were like, oh, wow, maybe we could never get beyond million dollar revenue and then you start growing again and then you get to uh, way past 10 million dollars revenue now but you get to kind of get to 10 you're like oh it's gonna be really hard how do we ever get like above this um so you have i guess you can have multiple tipping points yeah i like it because it kind of puts things in perspective um sometimes you get stuck and you have to keep working to get to the next level um kind of it can apply to acquisitions as well because you can look at kind of five deals in a row and five sellers might not be serious can be very easy to give up. All right. So next question is, um, who's a uh, marketer or business leader that you're running from these days? Uh, sorry, can you repeat that question? I didn't a, know that. A, a marketer or business leader uh, that you're learning from these days? Um, so in the SaaS space specifically, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Dan Martell, but of course. we work with a lot of people who have worked with him as a coach. And I think if you have a 
think if you're looking to sell a business or grow a business, uh-huh. um, I think some of the coaching he provides is really good for founders to help them make a lot of these decisions. A lot yeah. of things I said that we can't tell you, I think he's really good at doing it in a very direct way. Like yeah. he will get you through the psychological barriers of like what isn't, isn't possible. And also from a technical perspective, he's been there and done it before. So yeah. I, I'm generally like personally not usually a big fan of coaches. I think I'm kind of often be quite skeptical, but I say Dan, like he's the the real deal. He doesn't pay me to say this. He doesn't know I'm saying this. Um, but he does a really good job. A lot of the people in his yeah. coaching network have come to us and absolutely. I've I've actually worked with this, so some of the clients we've worked with have been uh, coached, you know, coached by him as well. So uh Dan is, is one of the best. Oh, Lucky coincidence on the answer. Yeah. Um, Thomas, where, where can listeners go to learn more about you? Yeah, so um, quite active on social media. You can usually find me on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, whichever one you prefer. Um, I'm active there. The team, so the FE International team are active there. Um, if you go on the FE International website, we have tons of free content. Like I said, 99.9% of what we do is free. You only pay us when we sell your business. So have tons of content. Whether you want to, well, if you're listening to this podcast, maybe this doesn't apply. Lots of people just like reading content. So you can go to our blog. We have lots of eBooks you can download. We publish like white papers, industry reports and what's going on. So check out our blog. There's content for everyone, like beginners, more advanced. Um, lists of podcasts we've been on, like conversations like this are super interesting. I think personally, if I was a, Buyer, I would learn more from this than reading a couple of blog posts. So I think kind of look around, see podcasts I've been on and conversations we've had like like this. Okay. Well, fantastic. Thomas, thank you so much for joining the show. Um, I know I've gained a lot. I've learned a ton. I know the listeners have also. And uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, well, thanks so much. The SaaS Marketing Superstars podcast is brought to you by Xamo Digital Marketing. If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. Thanks again for tuning in and keep on growing your SaaS.